Let me go ahead and get you this morning to open up your Bible to Titus chapter 1. And today we will be in verses 5 to 9. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this morning, worshiping our God together. That wonderful song, It Is Well With My Soul, maybe today some of you are having to really strain to say that uh, because there are some pretty significant things maybe going on in your life. I hope that the words of that song, that God ministered to your soul through those words, and I pray today that he will minister to all of our souls as we hear his word read and preached, as we continue to sing it and pray it and image it through the Lord's Supper. So Titus 1, 5 to 9, let's go ahead and go there and read. Just to set up verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Then we come to verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's pray to the Lord, ask for his blessing on our time. Our sovereign God, you have brought us here today Lord, may this time not be in vain. May it not be fruitless. But Father, may it be incredibly fruitful, profitable. You promise us that your word is profitable, that it is profitable and it makes us complete, ready, equipped for every good work. Lord, would you do that today through the preaching of your word? We, we ask nothing more, nothing less, God, because we know that through your word we, are, we become wise concerning salvation. It is able to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. So God, would that happen today? Those who are perhaps looking toward other things aside from the gospel, believers who have lost sight of the hope that we have in Jesus, of the grace, free, unmerited grace of God in Christ, and the righteous standing that we have before you, apart from works of our own. God, we pray that today those of us who have moved away from this gospel hope that you will bring us back. Those today who have never had this hope, who still, as the writer of Hebrews indicates, are afraid of death because they know not what will happen. They see only the end of life. And Father, I pray that today you will give them that life which is true, which is real, which is found only in your precious Son. That they would find eternal life, God. Those here uh, today who've never tasted your goodness and your love and your mercy and grace, that today they would. And God, that today they would turn away from sin, from the things which enslave us and ensnare us 
and burden us and prevent us from glorifying you and God that they would turn away from that and turn towards you, the only true God through Jesus Christ, your son. We ask today, God, that as that turning takes place, that they will bank everything on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him and trusting their souls to him, to a faithful God who sent in faithfulness and love his only son. God, would you help those who do not know you today? Would you regenerate them, bring them to new life? And we pray for all of us, God, that today your word would hit home, that it would affect us. It's a specific passage in some ways most applicable to a specific group of people, but as with all of your word, God, we trust that it is applicable to each of our lives. And so we ask that today you will make that clear and you will apply it as needed as only your Holy Spirit can do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we come to the qualifications for elders. Qualifications for elders. This is a, a passage that is paralleled in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We're currently going through the candidacy process with uh, some candidates for elder and for, for three candidates for deacon, one for elder. And it's an, it's an open process. We're, we're working through that. It's, it's uh, open-ended at this point as we go through with those candidates. And so this is a fitting time to discuss, God's, to discuss what God has to say about these things. But this is always fitting for the church, for specifically those of us who serve as elders, but also those of us who are, are under the, the, the authority and leadership of the elders in the local church. So if you want this coming week to kind of look at this again freshly, and those of you in gospel community groups, to also compare what we find here with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, you'll be able to sort of hold these two lists beside one another as we go through this in the coming weeks. The church, the elder of a church is the leader, and so for that reason I've entitled today's sermon a gospel leader. Last week we had a gospel worker. We looked at Paul's sort of gospel efforts as an apostle, And we applied that to all of our lives as believers. We're all gospel workers in a true sense if we belong to Jesus, if we are Christians who have embraced the gospel. But today we look very specifically at a gospel leader. That is a leader within the context of the local church. So let me just give you two preliminary comments before we move into this. The first is this. These qualifications that we find uh, as we go through this, this passage, we won't cover all of it today, but as we go through this passage, these qualifications are two things that are equally important for elders. They are prerequisites and they are pursuits, meaning this, that they must be already in place prior to bringing a man on to serve as an elder. These are not things that you, that you look for in hope. Right? These aren't potentials. These aren't where you come alongside of a brother and you say, you know, I recognize that, that these qualifications are not met, that these things do not line up with your life, but we're, we're looking forward toward that becoming a reality and in hope, and with all the potential that you represent, we're moving forward in this process. That's not what we find in this text. So they are by necessity prerequisites for those who would serve in this position. They're also pursuits, meaning that every elder is an imperfect man and imperfectly meets these criteria. And so therefore, he must always, just as we all as believers do, must always be pursuing the Lord Jesus, pursuing God's grace to transform us into his likeness 
by the power of his Holy Spirit. So they're pursuits. They're things that elders are always in the business of pursuing. And above all in the church are pursuing them with great vigor, with great energy and activity and prayer and saturation with the Bible. So they're prerequisites and pursuits. The second preliminary comment that I would make is that they are applicable to all believers. So one of the things that you'll find interesting about this list of qualifications is it's not meant to be this thing that only a select few in the church are to aspire to. Because here's the thing. If you look at the words that we find in this list of qualifications, you will see largely these ideas, if not these very words, applied to every Christian throughout the New Testament. Every Christian is to be this way. The leaders of the church are to be this way because they are leading the sheep in that direction, all of them. But this is applicable to all believers. And so for that reason, we're sort of Christ-likeness is being held up for us as we go through these. And for all of us, we're humbled by the fact that none of us meets these qualifications perfectly. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus. But I hope that all of us as a body will pursue these, not just those of us who have the title the position, the role, the responsibility of elder. So five things to look at this morning. Actually, let me take off the last two words there. We won't look at all of these this morning. Uh, We will start looking at these this morning. In fact, we'll only do the first two, and we'll pick up with the third next week with the potential of doing the third through the fifth next week, but I say, I stress potential, So the first two that we will look at today as we walk through this text, the first ideas are an elder's significance and an elder's reputation. So go ahead and look with me as we begin in verse 5, as we look at an elder's significance. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So I want to start here by giving you a little background. We need to kind of answer two questions. What is the connection between Paul and Titus? We need to get a little bit clearer on that. And then secondly, what is the connection between these two guys and this place called Crete? So what, what's the relationship between Paul and Titus, and what's the relationship between Paul and Titus and Crete? So first, let's look at Paul and Titus. Last week, we were introduced to Titus as we come to verse 4. You, you noticed that last week. I, I told you we would, we would look at him more in detail later, in more detail later, but we at least introduced this individual in verse 4. And he's described there by Paul as my true child in a common faith. And so Paul was, uh, Titus was probably converted by Paul, although, although we don't know that for sure, but he probably owed his, his conversion to God's work, God's grace, through the instrument of Paul in his life. He was a Greek, and it's interesting when you come to Acts 15, early on in the church's history, there was much discussion about whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised. It's, it's something, you know, funny thing today when you talk about circumcision or preach on circumcision, people just go cross-eyed because it's like, what? Circumcision sounds so distant that people will be arguing over circumcision. Should we circumcise or should we not? Very different context for this sort of question. But in that time, as the Christian movement was taking off, it was taking off as a Jewish movement very much, and Jews were circumcised. 
And so the question was, does it mean that, that anyone who comes, we know that, that God is bringing the gospel to Gentiles, but they, of course, need to become Jews. They need to become Jews in order to be a part of this Jesus thing, this Jesus movement. Well, that wasn't the case, and God demonstrated that to Peter, in particular, in the case of Cornelius But God had been demonstrating that for some time in the ministry of Paul. Paul had been going all over the Greek Mediterranean world preaching the gospel and people were getting saved. People were converting, turning away, as he tells the Thessalonians, from dead idols to the living God. This had been happening in Paul's ministry. And so he, Barnabas, and Titus take a trip to Jerusalem. There's this big council All of the sort of leading figures in the early church are there. And and Peter speaks and James speaks. And Paul sort of holds up Titus, who is a Greek, whose parents were Gentiles, as an example of the fact that God was bringing the gospel to Gentiles and was not requiring them to become Jews, i.e. to become circumcised. And so Titus was a very important aspect of Paul's ministry if for nothing else, for this, that God had demonstrated that through Titus, and Titus was served as a, as a prime example of that, as Paul fought against those who, who taught that you had to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. Titus appears most in the New Testament in the, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says this about Titus. He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. In chapter 8, verse 23, we know that Titus was very active in Paul's third missionary journey, which involved the Corinthians. And another thing that's interesting about Titus, as we get into this epistle and we see how messed up these Cretans are, is that the Corinthians were a pretty messed up church. In fact, that's the encouragement to any church person, any pastor, any elder board, or any any group of people, when they say, man, our church has so many issues, you can always look back at the early church and you can say, well, they had issues too. And some of those were pretty significant. And that was the case in Corinth. And so Paul sends Titus. Titus is one of those individuals who is working very closely with the Corinthian believers. And so Titus is equipped. He's already dealt with some hard situations. And now Titus is equipped to move into this different but similarly difficult situation in Crete. And Titus has been working with Paul for some time to help him carry out his apostolic ministry. And what is Paul's apostolic ministry? We encountered this last week in verse 1. So go back up to Titus 1.1. There in the first verse, Paul's servanthood to God, his apostleship to Jesus on behalf of Jesus, is what in verse one? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Titus was part of this work. That was Paul's mission statement. That's what Paul was doing all of this stuff for. That's why he was working among these believers in the local church. That's why he was preaching the gospel is because he was trying to bring people towards faith, the elect of God towards faith, knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with a godly way of life. So Titus is a believer. To kind of sum it up, Titus is a believer who has fully embraced and been spiritually brought up in Paul's gospel. And that is the reason why Paul calls him a true child in a common faith. Paul and Titus are one. They share the same gospel. 
They share the same passion. They share the same objective as they relate to Christians in the local church. So that's Paul and Titus. That's kind of the relationship between these two guys, which you have to understand and have in place before we kind of go any further. And I didn't introduce that last week because I think here is probably the most appropriate time to sort of nail that down. And so now we have to answer the question, what is the relationship between these two guys, Paul and Titus, and this place we find here in verse 5, Crete? Let me go ahead and get you to put up that next slide, if you will. So Crete is this little island down at the bottom. It's actually the largest of these Greek islands. It's south of southeast of the Greek mainland, of the mainland of Greece. It's south of the Aegean Sea. And it's kind of mixed up in really a lot of Paul's activity. I mean, you can see that Paul, Paul did a lot of work in Greece. We, Will recently preached about Paul in Athens, and you see that up there on the map. And then Corinth, we just talked about. Paul wrote two letters to Corinth. And then Smyrna and Ephesus, you see these in uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, and of course, Paul spent uh, much time engaging with the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders, and also writing his epistle to them. You even see Patmos up there, which is the island that John was exiled to. So this is kind of right in the middle, if you will, of the biblical world. The world of early Christian expansion and early Christian preaching. This island of Crete is about 160 miles long, 35 miles wide at its widest point, although it's about seven miles wide at some points. And it was the legendary birthplace of Zeus. So you can imagine that for pagan people, this was kind of a Mecca. You know, for pag pagans who were living in that world who still worshipped the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, this would be a hot spot. This would be a key place. So of course, Paul, as with Athens, would want to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known in this very significant place, the legendary birthplace of Zeus. The first mention of Crete or the Cretans that we have in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2 where we are told that they were present at Pentecost. So you, you, know, you remember going through as you, as you read into Acts and Peter stands up and he gives this amazing sermon to all of these Jews who've come to worship and God-fearers, the Gentiles who, who worshiped the one true God, who've come together around Jerusalem and they're worship, worshiping God for this festival of Pentecost. Peter gives this message, and there are all kinds of people there. You know, you see a list of the nations, really, in Acts chapter 2, and listed among those people are the Cretans. And we don't find any mention of them again until Acts chapter 27. Paul is being taken to, to Rome, and he is sailing along the southern coast of Crete. And at one point in Acts chapter 27, the, they're going to sort of dock in at Crete, but that doesn't work out. They get wrapped up in a storm, and this is when they sail, continue to sail west, and they, they get shipwrecked off of the island of Malta. Not sure if you remember that. Before they end up making their way up to Rome. Italy is over on the left here, if this map Continued, And so that's the second time we have mention of Crete, but Paul does not stop there. He doesn't dock in or land on Crete at that point. So at this point in, in reading through the, the, the book of Acts, as we look at the early Christian story, all we know is that the gospel has made its way to Crete because some Jews have come to Pentecost and probably have brought the gospel back, but we don't really have any information about that. And then Paul is sailing along the southern coast, but doesn't stop there. So at this point, there has been no specific gospel work 
on the island of Crete. And so what happened? Well, it is likely that Paul visited the island after his Roman imprisonment. So he sails on up, goes to Rome. He stays there for a short time. He's released. And then he goes and begins to preach the gospel. One of the places he goes to is this island of Crete. And this is just before he, of course, writes 1 Timothy and Titus. And he tells Titus here that he has left him in Crete. Titus was with Paul in Crete. And Titus, Paul now speaks to Titus and he says that he's left him behind to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. I just want to point out at the end of verse 5, he says, as I directed you. The, The Greek verb there is a strong command word, which means that this is not a suggestion. Paul is not giving Titus a suggestion about what he could do if he finds the time. Paul is, this is a command. It's it's an authoritative apostolic command. And what's important about this is we know that this is not primarily for Titus. It's not so much the case that Titus really needs to be commanded in order to do what it is Paul's told him to do because he's what? A true child in a common faith. Paul and Titus are one. So what this represents is Paul's apostolic stamp on Titus's efforts in Crete. And so when we read on in this epistle, this is very important, this background is, because as we read into the epistle of, uh, into the epistle of Titus, we will see that these Cretans are giving Paul and Titus and others lots of trouble. And so Paul wants to put his apostolic, authoritative stamp on Titus's work in Crete, and he also wants to give him some clear-cut direction. Okay, so that's important. We need to know that. We need to know that stuff uh, before we move on. So now that we've set up the text, I want to bring you back to the main idea. If you go ahead and go to the next slide, thank you. So back to this main idea, the first idea that we have here in this text is an elder's significance. One of the major things, if not the major thing to be done, is the appointing of elders in every town, as we see in verse 1. This was Paul's habit. This is the way that he worked. He would go in and he would preach the gospel. He would build people up in the faith, and then he would work to appoint elders in every church, in every town. And so we find that in Acts 14, 23, that he would appoint a plurality, not just one, and we see here the word is plural, not just one elder, but a plurality of elders over every church. This was Paul's normal practice. And now, of course, he's extending this to the island of Crete. And all of this tells us one key thing. This is what I've been getting at all along. One key thing here. We need elders. We need elders. We need leaders. We need those who oversee Christ's church. You need elders. I need elders. And each of the other elders needs elders. The church as a whole needs elders. Or Paul would not have taken such pains to leave Titus behind to this very essential, very necessary, indispensable work that we see him doing here. Elders are an essential ingredient in the life of the local church. You can't miss this point. As you go to the qualifications, you have to see this, really, before you get into 
what it means or looks like to be an elder, what one has to have or, or what qualifications are in place in a, on a person's life before they can become an elder. Now, I just want to sort of let everyone know we currently have four elders. I didn't ask them to stand or raise their hand or come up here or anything like that. Uh, but we have four elders at the moment. We have Ken Spear. Walt Sellers, Mike Walpole, and myself, four elders at the moment, currently considering bringing on a fifth. And so that is the current situation as we apply this to our church, and we'll go on to do this in a moment. But that's the elder situation here at Four Corners Church. So why do we need elders? Why are elders significant, or why are elders essential? I think there are two ideas to help bring this out. The first is that elders are shepherds. Elders are shepherds. And the second is that elders are managers. Two ideas, shepherds and managers. So what about shepherds? New Testament elders are at the core shepherds. Acts chapter 20. I want you to hear these two passages. I'm going to read them slowly because I want you to see this relationship between the role of elder, the office of elder, and their role as a shepherd. So Acts 20, 28, Paul says this to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. You see that? The flock. This is the way that the Apostle Paul conceived of a church. A church is a flock, and elders are shepherds concerned with that flock. One of the reasons, I'll just throw this in there, that we are doing membership classes. It's not not a matter of, you know, hey, we just want to make sure that we have have, uh, all of our ducks in a row and we have control and all this. It's not about that. It's about making sure that there is a flock that's clear-cut And there are elders who can care, shepherds who can care for those sheep. So becoming a church member is really about saying openly and clearly, I am ready to be a sheep to these shepherds as they serve the good shepherd. So he says, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and here it is, to care for. That's what shepherds do. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So Acts 20, 28, let me read you another passage that is very significant in relating elders to shepherds. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is Peter, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And here's what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Once again, the flock. And so here we have the two, arguably, the two most significant individuals in the early church, Peter and Paul, who are telling the leaders, gospel leaders, of all the churches that they were involved in. I mean, read 1 Peter. All of the Christians that would have been affected, that, that Peter addressed in the opening of that letter, all throughout Asia Minor. And look at Paul, all the activity that he's involved with. He, most Largely, most of the New Testament is written by Paul. And what are these two men, these two very significant individuals in the early church, what are they saying about elders? They are saying that elders are shepherds at the core and this tells us a couple of things one it tells us that we're like sheep 
And sheep are pretty, well, they wander. They stray. They fall away. They get eaten up by wolves and lions and all kinds of other things. They break their legs. They get hurt. Sheep wander from the flock and they do not do as they need to do in relationship to the other sheep and to the shepherds. So the shepherds are guiding them and leading them and nurturing them and caring for them and feeding them. Psalm 23 is a beautiful image of how God is our shepherd. And the good shepherd has provided under shepherds. You know, we get to that passage. We all love the passages in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, about Jesus being the good shepherd. Everybody likes that. Everybody likes those passages and likes to kind of take solace and take comfort in those great truths that God, that Christ is our shepherd. But then when it comes to the practicalities of that, right, how does it, what does it practically look like to be under Jesus, the good shepherd? In real concrete terms, that means being under a body of shepherds in a local church. How many people would sort of contemplatively or devotionally read John 10 and meditate endlessly about how Jesus is their good shepherd, but care nothing about the local church? Care nothing about the way in which the good shepherd actually shepherds through, by means of, his under-shepherds. Elders are also called managers or stewards. So one, they're called shepherds. And two, they are called managers or stewards. Look at verse 7 as we kind of continue down through this passage. Look at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. An overseer is God's steward. A shepherd, an elder, is God's steward. We elders take care of something for someone else. It's a beautiful idea. We take care of something for someone else, namely the Lord Jesus, his sheep, his flock. The church does not belong to us. We simply manage it on behalf of God, and specifically God's Son, who is the good shepherd. So how do we apply all of this to ourselves? We've, we've covered a lot here when we think about what this text has to say about Paul and, and, and elsewhere, Paul and Titus and Paul, Titus, and Crete. Now we've considered, okay, so elders are significant in the context of the local church and elders are shepherds and elders are managers. So how do we apply all of this to ourselves? What, what does this matter for us? What are the implications for us as a church? Well, first... Let me speak to those of us who are elders. This is the response that I think we elders must have as we come to a text like this. And first, it's basic. We must feel the weightiness of our significance. Let me say this. I hesitated to use the word significance, especially because I'm preaching this sermon and I'm an elder. So it sounds kind of self, I don't know, congratulatory or whatever else, self-praise to say, an elder's significant, listen to me, I'm an elder. That would be, of course, silly. What I mean by significance is everything I've just said. They play a significant role, an important function. But the one thing that we must see is that significance cannot mean privilege and prestige. Shepherds are not a privileged and prestigious class. Simply not the case. There's nothing about privilege or prestige. There is instead a holy burden, a heavy weight, 
a heavy responsibility. This is not about loftiness. This is not about exalting ourselves. This is about carrying a significant burden for which we are told explicitly as elders, we will give an account to the Lord when he returns for how we cared for his sheep, period. That's gonna happen, and it's really gonna happen in space and time when Christ himself returns for those very sheep. So we must feel the weightiness of this. We must see ourselves as shepherds first and foremost. I wanna say this, this church has four pastors. Is that understood by the people here at Four Corners? Is that understood by us as elders? This church has four pastors, not one pastor and three elders or the relationship between the two. These guys are elders and this guy's the pastor and what does that, this church has four shepherds. Four shepherds. An elder must see himself first and foremost above all things as a shepherd. That is at the core of who we are and what we do. We must also daily remind ourselves that as stewards, this church does not belong to us. Right? I mean, you, you get into some leadership position, you get into authority, and you can maybe think that it's, it's your church. It's my church. It's our. No, it's not that. It's Christ's church. It doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to a body of individual men. It belongs to the Lord himself. This is Christ's church. Yes, you will see if you go through our Constitution and bylaws that we have a, a CEO and a CFO and all that other stuff. And we have tax-exempt status and all that, the different things that sort of go into the practicalities of being a church in 21st century America on the books and so forth. But don't let those things fool you. This is the Lord's church, not my church or the other elders' church or us as a body. That's simply not the case. We are managers, stewards of Christ's precious church. We are managing his precious ones until he sends his son back to get them. And he will do that for all of us. Second, how should the church as a whole respond to this? You come to this text and you're thinking, okay, great. Yeah, you guys listen to that, you elders over there. How, how should the church as a whole, those in our church who are not elders, or really all of us because all of us have elders. And I just wanna say this, this is one of the things that's very important to me as an elder at this church is that we as a, as a body of elders function in truth, in practice as each other's shepherds. Because what, I, I need a shepherd just as much as you do. I am, a, I am a Christian going through the Christian life and I have struggles and I'm tempted and I, I need brothers who can come alongside of me and shepherd me. I also am a sheep. And every single one of our elders is a sheep needing the grace of God in Christ through his under shepherds to minister to each of us in these ways. So how do we respond as a whole individuals within the church? First thing is basic, get to know your elders. Get to know the people in this church who serve in this capacity. Honor and submit to them. Do as the scriptures say. Speak to them in the way that the scriptures say we ought to speak. Listen. Honor. Humbly accept instruction. This is important. Humbly accept instruction and rebuke from them, knowing that this is one of the key means that God uses to correct and transform each of us. We're told that in the scriptures. 
what kind of, what kind of person within the context of the church, whether it's an elder or someone who's not an elder, refuses to be rebuked? A person who refuses to be rebuked is a fool. That's exactly what Proverbs says. I didn't say that. That's what Proverbs says. Someone who does not listen to counsel, someone who does not put around him people who can question and correct him, we must all listen to correction and rebuke. And it is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily by the ministry of the shepherds and elders of a church that this takes place. So humbly receive that. Prayerfully receive that. Know this, it's not given quickly. It's not given prayerlessly. It's not given carelessly and without much thought and prayer together as a, as a group. And then finally, pray for, pray for your elders, for all of them. And don't pick and choose between elders. I like that one, but not that one. I like those two, but not those. You know, this is my favorite elder. That one, no, I don't care about him, but that one's my favorite. Don't do that. It's, about, it's, it's, a, it's a group of men who are, to whom your, your soul has been entrusted, every single one of them. Now, we'll say this. One of the ways that we've tried to implement an elder ministry here in this local church is that we have shepherding groups. And so each of the gospel community groups, if functioning well, gospel community group leaders are funneling up prayer needs and pastoral concerns to a specific elder. And that elder's over those groups. And that elder then brings that to the board of elders or the group of elders And we as a body of elders pray over these concerns. We talk about them and we minister in the best way that we can as a group. So pray for us as we do this. Because look, we need God. We can't do this apart from God's grace. As a third point of application, I want to say to the men of our church that this is a good thing to desire. 1 Timothy 3.1 says this, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So I want to ask this question. Have you ever thought about it? You ever thought about being an elder? Do you have that desire? Do you at least have the aspiration that these qualifications as we see listed here would be formed in you through the Holy Spirit? Is this something that you would pursue would desire. I want to encourage you men specifically to pursue vocational ministry in particular, to pursue pastoral ministry. Now here, once again, the, the words get crisscrossed because you say pastoral ministry. Well, now you're just saying the elders are different from the pastor. Let me make this point. There are some individuals who are called to vocational ministry and who are called to vocational eldership, meaning this, that they get their compensation, they get their pay, their, their means of living, by means of serving day in, day out in this role. And so I would just encourage you, men within the church, have you ever thought about gospel ministry? Have you ever thought about saying, you know what? I, I believe that God's calling me to be a pastor. I believe that God's calling me to vocational ministry. Missionary work. I've talked with some of you who, there, in fact, there's a handful of guys within this church specifically who have come to me and said, you know, I, I think, I think, God might be calling me into ministry at some point in my life. Or God's working in that way in my life, in my home life, in my wife's heart, in my heart. If this is you, come talk to me. 
This is very special, very important to me as a pastor, as, as one of the elders here, as one of the shepherds here, that, that those of you who are, who are interested in pursuing gospel ministry or interested in becoming an elder, that you come and talk to us and that we can shepherd you in that. Part of our responsibility as, as elders is to bring up and nurture future gospel leaders. It's all about replication. It's all about making sure that 10 or 15, 20 years from now, this church has a functioning group of shepherds and that other churches are planted where there are functioning shepherds and that people are sent abroad to the unreached people groups of the world where churches in places that have never heard about the love of Christ can have churches and men who are, who are overseeing those churches and shepherding those precious saints. That's what we need to be about as a body. That's what we need to be about as a church. So that is an elder's significance. I want to finish up this morning on this second idea of an elder's reputation. An elder's reputation. One common thing that you may have heard is the idea that it doesn't matter what other people think about you. <laughs> this is quite common, especially in our individualistic culture, our kind of prideful, youthful, individualistic culture. It's like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. It's about my self-expression. It's just about who I am. I'm going to be who I am. I don't care what anyone has to say about me or the way I act or what I do or where I go or any of that stuff. It just doesn't make any difference. We find this a lot. We see it commonly. That one's conduct is entirely about his or her own conscience and liberty in Christ. Period. That's it. That's all that matters. If my conscience is clear... And I understand the gospel, liberty in Christ, I do whatever I want. But to say that, it doesn't matter what people think, especially in the case of leaders, is contrary to what we read here in Titus. And so look at verse 6, Titus 1.6. If anyone is above, what's that word? Reproach. Above reproach. This is paralleled in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach. This is also translated as blameless. Blameless or above reproach. And it has to do with not being the object of accusation. So Brian Chappell, he conceives of the idea this way. Not chargeable with some offense. The church father, Jerome, said that all the virtues are comprehended in this one word. And so as you read commentaries and you think about the, the relationship of this idea above reproach to everything that follows, what you realize is that everything that follows, so in fact, as we look at an elder's home, an elder's character, and an elder's doctrine, as we go through the remainder of these verses, all the way up through verse 9, what we notice is that this is just really an explication of this idea above reproach. To be above reproach and to be blameless is given an explanation here for us. And that is unpacked and unfolded in what follows. So as Jerome says, all of this is comprehended in this one word. It is, it is like an umbrella idea that covers all of these other concepts above reproach. So what does this mean? It sounds a little bit perfectionistic. That's not the case. Listen to what John MacArthur, listen to how John MacArthur clarifies and explains this idea. I think this is one of the better explanations of what that I've found. So he says this, Paul is not speaking of sinless perfection, 
but is declaring that leaders of Christ's church must have no sinful defect in their lives that could justly call their virtue, their righteousness, or their godliness into question and indict them. There must be nothing in their lives to disqualify them as models of moral and spiritual character for believers under their care to emulate. They not only must teach and preach rightly, but also must live rightly. Paul charged Timothy that, quote, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, he was to show himself as an example of those who believe. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. So the key to understanding this idea, I think, can be found in three things. You think, okay, uh, above reproach, I understand that it doesn't mean perfect. I understand that it's an umbrella idea that captures everything that we're going to go on to look at in the coming weeks slash weeks. I understand all of that. But I need a little bit more clarity on kind of the why and the what of this. I want to give you three ideas here. The role, the purpose, and the witness of an elder. So first, the role. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that at the heart of an elder's or a shepherd's responsibility is the fact that he is an example to the flock. In fact, this is the primary way that he leads. Because one of the things that you might think, if you're, if you're kind of an elder or an overseer or shepherd, whatever word you want to use, over a church, is that the way that you get people to do what you want them to do is you dominate them. You tell them the deal. You make them do it. You, you kind of you oppress them. You kind of push them into the mold that you have determined they need to fit in. And that's not the case. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that the primary way that a, a gospel leader or an elder, a shepherd, an overseer, does his work is by way of example. By way of example. And so, of course, he must be an example in character in his home, in his doctrine, to the flock. He must be. Role and then purpose. Remember, as we looked at the opening verses of Titus last week, remember what we talked about. I mentioned this earlier this morning. Remember the idea of Paul's ministry. What is he about? What is, he, what is, his, what is his overall objective and goal and purpose as he's going out planting these churches and writing these letters? We read that in verse one, and I've already read it this morning, but I wanna read it again. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, what's that next bit say? Which accords with godliness. So here's the question. How in the world, how in the world can shepherds, elders, overseers, shepherd God's people towards a doctrinal and trustful understanding of the gospel that, that just creates good godly works. How in the world can this happen if that's not already in place in an elder's life? It can't because his primary role is that the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness would increase and increase and abound, which means that that must be something that that individual is about in his own life. How else can this be something that the elders are leading others in? Role, purpose, and finally, witness. Leaders more than any other, more than any others, contribute to the world's impression of the church. We see this all the time. We see these time articles, New York Times articles, 
Wall Street Journal articles, and other things, where the church comes into reproach. And very frequently, why is the church blamed? Why is the church under reproach? Is because of its leaders. Because of its leaders falling away from the truth, falling away from this, a life built on the gospel that accords with godliness. Oftentimes, this is what smears the name of Jesus most. This is what smears the name of Christ before an unbelieving world. And so it is imperative that these qualifications are present in those who lead the church or else the witness of the church will be severely crippled among those who don't belong to Jesus. Titus 2.8 says, So that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. If this is the case for every individual believer, so Paul's talking, he's talking to Titus and he's saying, have everyone act in this way so that opponents may not be able to come against us and speak evil against us and tear down the name of Jesus through tearing us down. If this is the case for every believer, how much more is this the case for those who lead Christ's church? And then Titus 2.10 says, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You care about the gospel? Do we care about the gospel, brothers who serve as elders? Do we care about the gospel? If we do, we must adorn it. We must adorn it with a richly faithful doctrinal life that accords with godliness. That is how we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, which means this, an idea of the gospel or an idea of grace that does not with it create a godly conduct tears down grace. It tears down the gospel. It tears down the doctrine of God our Savior and it leads to the ill repute of God in the world. So I just wanna say this, so how does this work in practice? It all has to do with this word that we find often and that we try to teach our kids this idea of integrity. It's this, are you the same everywhere? Do our lives invite accusation or blame? Would anyone in our lives be surprised to know that we are elders of a local church? You know, it, it's, I, we've recently been meeting with, with candidates and one of the questions that I try to ask as we meet with the individual and with the individual and his wife and as we go through certain things is, is there anyone in your life who if you told them, I am, going to, I am pursuing eldership in my local church, they'd say, what? Or they would look at you like you were crazy. Or they would look at you like, man, I'm not going to that church. <laughs> is that the case? If that's the case, it means that that individual is not blameless or above reproach. Now let me qualify that just a bit and give this. There will always be slander. There will always be bad judgments. There will always be evil men who try to attack other people. And there will always be evil men especially who try to attack gospel workers. Paul was, if you want to say above reproach means no one can ever criticize you, then Paul was never above reproach. He was always criticized by these evil men, workers of darkness, these false teachers of all sorts. He was, he was always being criticized. It doesn't mean you're never criticized. It means that you do not have accusations that can stick regarding your home, your character, and specifically your doctrine. That is what is in view as we think about what is meant here. So as we, as we end this morning, in terms of application, I think we should finish 
right where we began. These that we will read next week and following, they are prerequisites and they are pursuits, which means this, with all of our heart, brothers, those of us who serve as elders, let's pursue godliness with everything in us to be saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ that arises from the text of Holy Scripture and to, to cling to that, to love that, to pursue that, to hate all forms of evil, to mortify the flesh, and to trust Christ's forgiveness when we sin, and to grow daily by the Holy Spirit into his Christ-likeness, always relying on his grace and not our own strength. That is what we must be, that is what we must do if we are to lead Christ's church. And then finally, as I started by saying this is applicable to all of us, all of us should pursue the character qualities, the home life, and the doctrine and faithfulness to the gospel and to the scriptures that we find in the verses that we will cover in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Our great God, We thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the doctrine of God, our Savior, for this wonderful truth of the gospel that has been made known to us, that apart from works of our own, we are made clean through the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us freely. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for his spirit who comes into us and makes us new and and who puts to death the deeds of the flesh, who helps us, who, who in us wages war against fleshly lusts that themselves wage war against the soul. We're told in Galatians 5, Father, there's wonderful words, to walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And we praise you, God, that you've given us your Spirit. And we do not always walk in him, but we pray that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly and that through that precious word that you, by your Spirit, would conform us into Christ's image. Would you, would you be with us as shepherds of this church, God? Would we, would we be inflamed with our mission? Would we be inflamed with this call? Would we not accept any form of mediocrity, any taint of sin, any dabbling with the devil's works, but would we walk with you, God, in holiness and righteousness and lead this people towards you so that when we stand before you, we would give an account and be found faithful as managers and stewards of your house, the household of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.